good Wednesday morning, and today John Patrick is going to be talking about understanding how God dealt with humans from Genesis to now. I have been somewhat obsessed over the last little while with a book by Leon Cass, uh, who's been a favorite author of mine for a long while. Um, he hasn't written a great deal, but what he's written is always worth reading. He's a very smart man from the University of uh, Chicago. Um, a biochemist, uh, but also a philosopher. Um, and with his wife, he teaches one of the most sort of taught. I don't know if he's still, I don't even know if he's still alive. I should look. But with his wife, he taught a course on courtship in the University of Chicago. And it was fully booked on day one every year. And there's a book that goes with it called On Two Wings, I think. But um, the book that uh, I've been reading for the third or fourth time is uh, Reading Genesis for Wisdom, uh, which is thick, you know, it's uh, several hundred pages. And in it, he's trying to read the scriptures, not as though he, he believes, because he doesn't, but as the secular Jew he is who has become aware later in his life, as so many of us do, that something has got lost en route. And he wants to understand why his parents and his grandparents gave up on the faith that had kept the Jews alive and identifiable for all those centuries when they didn't have a, a home of their own, which is an amazing phenomenon. And if you took Americans or Canadians and put them on a plane and took them to another culture and said, you're never coming back to the US or Canada, um, get used to this country, it's where you're going to live. I doubt whether we would be identifiable as Christians uh, within a couple of generations, let alone thousands of years. I doubt whether we would survive in many cases. Um, but the Jews did. So it's an interesting question to ask, what can we learn from how they did that? What did God teach them on the way that made that possible? And uh, Genesis is an extraordinary book in so many ways. And what Cass does is read it psychologically and anthropologically, uh, uh, not as I was brought up looking at prophecy and types, but trying to understand what God was saying to the creature he's made about himself and about the creature, us. Uh, and he takes you through an amazing history from creation uh, to Babel, to the flood, to Noah, to the patriarchs, uh, and ends up with Joseph. And at each stage, humanity is becoming a different creature. Now, for instance, I had never noticed until Cass pointed it out that in Genesis 1, we've covered this already in these things before, but it's worth renewing at this point because it's deeply important. Uh, human beings and the heavens do not get an individual medal. It's not everybody takes a medal home. They are not said to be good in and of themselves. The whole of creation is good but they don't get a prize, everything else does. Now, the Jews understand that the heavens don't get a prize because all around them people had creation stories which basically uh, were copulation in the heavens by the gods and who didn't behave very well. And so God was saying to, to the children of Israel through this story, look, 
the heavens are just something I made. You mustn't worship them. They're not me. I am not the heavens. They're just something I made. And just for fun, so to speak, he says, oh, and by the way, I made the stars also. Just think of being in the desert with no light pollution. Billions of them up there. They'd be sitting with their flocks looking up. It's an overwhelming sight when you get away from the light. Uh, and then we don't get it. Interesting. The creature that's made in the image of God is not told you're, you're okay. In fact, it's implied you're going to have problems. Because God clearly wants a creature that can love him. We inhabit a love story. And that if anybody is preaching the gospel or telling the story and the audience doesn't realize this is a love story, something has got lost. Uh, because the moment the Holy Trinity decided that they wanted human creatures to have a love relationship with them, they forewent necessarily, logically, the use and the expression of their ultimate glory and power because that would totally overwhelm us. And you can't overwhelm a lover. It won't be a love relationship. You can overwhelm them in, in a, a sort of romantic way, but that's not overwhelm. That's not, that's not dominating. You have to leave the flowers on the doorstep. You, you have to declare your love and hope that it will be reciprocated. Uh, that's what the Holy Trinity has decided to do with us. Uh, God had got enough angels. The angels see God and know who he is. There's no question of them disbelieving. Satan believes, probably more than anyone else, because he has seen the reality. He doesn't like it. He chose to go the other way. Uh, better to serve in hell. But better to rule in hell than serve in heaven is what Milton puts into the devil's mouth as his explanation for what he did. Um, we have that streak in us, we know. We sometimes destroy good things because we don't want other people to have one. You know, it's awful. So, right in that first chapter, there's an immense amount of psychology to think about. And the other interesting thing is, Adam doesn't say a word. Yet the difference between us and all the other animals, which clearly is part of the image of God, is that we are capable of abstract thought. Animals don't have categories like love, honesty. They don't exist. They have, they have instincts. But we know we have the capacity to understand things that cannot be measured, and yet we're, we're destroying ourselves at the moment by thinking that if it's not science, it's not real. COVID is a very good example. The management of COVID was a disaster because it thought, the people managing it, that it was simply a technical problem. Now we're learning big time, and we're going to go on learning for at least 10 years, that it wasn't simply a technical problem. It was a moral challenge, and we failed it big time. We all live in order to die well, because this is not all there is. If this is all there is, it's a disaster. But we know deep down in ourselves, it's not all there is. It's a training ground. And we didn't, we failed the test. 
as a as a culture. I mean, throughout human history, disasters have occurred on scales much bigger than COVID. And our forefathers handled them with courage and faith. We showed neither. And we were forced not to uh, by administrators who have no cultural depth at all. Scientism, not science. The science was, is never in. There's always more to learn. That was scientism and a belief that science is all you need, which is nonsense. So, Adam doesn't say a word. He's overwhelmed by what he can see. Now, in the next bit, he does speak, not very much. First of all, he proves himself to be an administrator when God brings him all the animals and he gives them names. And we're told that God would walk with Adam and Eve. We, we learn nothing he, about Eve as such in the first story, except that male and female created he them, but there were only two at that point. But Adam's eyes were open to Eve in that second story. And in effect, he says, wow, this is something I've never seen before. He was given a new eyesight, if you like. And he had a companion. Uh, and we we are fulfilled in, in our marriage relationships. Not that they are all continuous joy, are they? No, I mean, we are meant to um, <clears throat> push one another in the right direction and to say, that's ridiculous, that's foolish, that's wrong. Uh, if there's not open conversation at that level, you might as well give up. Uh, but we hopefully don't do that, although we're not as good as we used to be at these things because we don't speak truth in church. We don't learn these stories. It's amazing how little is said by the heroes of the stories. But all the stories have been remembered by the Jews in amazing detail, and by us in much less detail, with much less care. Um, and that's what created the Jewish culture that could survive anything the world could throw at it, except whether it's going to survive plenty and being dominant in the world remains to be seen. Humans have not proved themselves very competent with great success like that. So then the next most important statement comes in, which if we had got this deeply ingrained in our souls, we would not have been suckers for critical uh, race theory and the like. What happens is sin. God, Adam and Eve talk. God has put them in a place of perfection. And he has provided them with all they need to eat in the form of the fruit on the trees. But then he puts this challenge in the way that two of the trees must not be eaten from in the center of the garden. And of course, we know the story. Uh, the fall, the break between real communion with God and sin getting in between is what that story is about. We are all fallen creatures. And the moment we lose that, we're going to lose our culture because we're, we're trying to build a culture on a lie or on the denial of a truth. Not so much a lie, but a denial of truth, a pushing away of truth. And critical race theory that says it's all about race. No, it goes further back than that. It's all about humans. And every single one of us is a fallen creature. And we know that. 
we, we all know when we do wrong. It is built into us. Our children know it. Before they can speak sentences, they've got these categories in place. No animal has them. They only have instincts. Uh, they're amazing instincts, but they're instincts. No abstract reality it lies in the lives of animals like it does in ours. So um, I think Chesterton probably writes about this better than anyone else in so many places where orthodoxy does it beautifully where he talks about this reality of the world uh, that we have to come to terms with. I, I love the phrase he says, we all know deep down that we are the survivors of a colossal wreck, a ship that went down and at the beginning of time. That ship, of course, was first communion with God. We were separated from him by sin. But he knew that was going to happen. There was a long journey to go on. And what uh, helps, I think, a lot of people, it helped me a lot when Jeremy Begbie taught me this little gem, that the way to read the Bible is to compare it to music. It's a very good way to read it. Classical music... Uh, starts in a key and ends in the same key. Uh, it, it can last a few minutes or an hour or so or a bit less, or if it's a Wagner opera, several hours. But you always know when you've got home. And we, he gave a series of lectures at uh, Augustine College, of which we have the DVDs available if people want to uh, buy them, but it costs us a bit to make new copies, but they're brilliant. Um, he um, he insisted on having a good piano because as well as he taught uh, theology through the arts and he's a, uh, a good pianist, a very good pianist, concert class. And he, he sat down at the piano at, at the beginning of the lectures and he played a little bit of Mozart, but he stopped before the end of the piece. And looking up, smiled, he said, every one of you know that that piece is not finished. So don't tell me you're not musical. There's nobody in this room who doesn't know that isn't finished. And then he played the final chord. He said, now you know it's finished. If Mozart had been two floors up and asleep, he would have woken up and come down to play that, that chord. It's a home away and home again pattern to classical music, which didn't break down until post-modernity began. And Begbie says, I think you can make the case it began in music. Chopin was the first to write etudes which didn't finish. He played something, it was a study, then he left it, went on to the next one. He was denying completion, denying, denying the meaning which music had had before. This is just a study. This was reductionism in music, post-modernity, if you like, in music. Um, now, says Begbie, within the big overarching story, which begins in a garden and ends in a city, the Garden of Eden and the City of God. That's a big overarching story. Inside that, there are layers of home again, uh, away, home away and home again stories. Uh, Israel going from uh, Canaan to Egypt back to Canaan. That's a home away, uh, home again. 400 years stretch. Uh, they've got a longer one from... Uh, the destruction of Jerusalem till 1948. 
but there are many like that. And he layers them beautifully, the stories that have this pattern. He said, you, you mustn't make it too rigid, but it's a, a helpful way of looking at things. Now, so we've now got a way of thinking about what we're reading that is pushing us towards a deeper meditation on the text. So from Adam, the first thing that happens, of course, is his first son is a murderer. But note the introduction to that murder, it's envy that drives it, which again, animals don't have, we do. Uh, but before the murder, God says to Cain, evil is crouching at the gate. You must control it. And he didn't. But God made it clear, you could control this. Many of your impulses are right, but that one was wrong. And he wasn't executed. Uh, but that is in us all. And we hear nothing in terms of explanation from the actors, Cain and Abel, nothing serious. And then God leaves the world to go on without a legal system, without much in the way of instruction from him other than what he'd written on our hearts. There's no account of other things. And mankind gets along in their own sort of way and pride grows. Hence the story of Babel. Uh, they are very full of pride. We can do everything just like modern man. And God says, hmm, we must stop this. So he confuses their language and that breaks them up into groups. That's why language is so important. Um, we always used to say when people come into another culture, uh, you've got to decide which language you're going to teach because the language will decide the culture. One will win in the end anyway. So it would be better to do it from the start uh, because it's going to cause a lot of trouble if you don't. So to take a less controversial example than modern immigration, when the Normans conquered England, the last time anybody crossed the, uh, the channel into England and won the victory, uh, they suppressed the Celts and the, the Saxons uh, French became the language you had to speak. But it didn't last. They weren't big enough, and eventually they were overwhelmed. There are still Norman French names who've been in England since 1066, but they're English, they're not French, these people, despite having French names. French name is just uh, a reminder, that's part of our history. You don't pretend it didn't happen because there's things to learn from it. But the language determines... Uh, the culture to a very large degree. And if you don't share the language, you're not going to share the culture. Many things cannot be translated. Even poets say, this cannot be translated adequately. Poetry in particular is in that category. So uh, we move on to the patriarchs after Noah. Noah, of course, uh, is the only one that God thinks is good enough to keep alive. And we have that story. And immediately after uh, they come back to land, uh, we have the terror of sin again, Noah gets completely drunk and then there's very 
irregular and inappropriate sex and um, misbehavior of various sorts. We're, we're off into the old story again. But now we, we see the beginnings of um, more organized sacrifice going on, but not a great deal yet. Um, then we, we move on in due course uh, to Abraham, uh, Abraham as it, we first meet him, who speaks with God. And the story, again, doesn't contain a large amount of narrative, quite, quite enough for us to think about things, but we all remember the story and, and Abraham's trials, at least 10 of them that God puts him through. And in each case, there's a, a learning process going on. And Cass actually published uh, um, some articles on these issues, Abraham learning to be a husband and Abraham learning to be father. But he had to learn about marriage too. He screwed up badly in that, pretending his sister was a, his wife was his sister and allowing her to be taken into the king's harem before God intervened and said no. And, uh, the king was angry but didn't get rid of him. He left the land a richer man than he came. And he did that twice. Uh, he didn't really understand what marriage was. He didn't understand what a wife was. He didn't understand what a son was. And he had to learn along the way. Uh, Isaac, I don't think there's a, there's, there's not more than a couple of sentences I don't, it, uh, that Isaac speaks in the story. I mean, that doesn't surprise me when you start thinking of it psychologically. If your dad had tied you down on an altar and raised a knife before suddenly God spoke, whether the boy was aware of that or just Abraham, we don't know, but he was free and the ram was sacrificed. And interesting, Cass points out again something I hadn't noticed, that in the scriptural story when that was over, it says Abraham went back to the young men. It doesn't say that Isaac went with him. We don't know how, how old Isaac was at the time. Did he have to make his own way after that? Clearly he had no great attachment to his father compared to his mother. Uh, so Isaac is a, an interesting story uh, in so many ways. Uh, but it, it's God saying he kept the story going. He's a patriarch and he, he began to realize the importance of family and procreation and how God's promises are going to be fulfilled and we have to play our role in that. Uh, and he did that. And we get to uh, his sons, uh, Esau uh, and Jacob. And we all know that story well. But again, uh, Cass has comments to make about this that are deeply insightful. He points out that when, after a long separation, Jacob is going to meet Esau again, and he's worried, so he makes all sorts of provisions to see that Esau can't wipe him and his family out in one go, and he sends presents and the like. But when Esau and Jacob meet, they embrace, and they weep on each other's shoulders. Uh, they're reconciled, and then they go their separate ways. And... Cass compares that with when Jacob uh, meets Joseph again in Egypt after a long separation. And he points out 
that the Jews look for what is not there, so to speak. There's no mention of anybody weeping on this occasion. And the Jewish explanation, which is not in the scriptures, but I think he's probably right, is that Jacob was horrified because Joseph had become an Egyptian. He had been enculturated. He was dressed as an Egyptian. After all, he was uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer, at least, if you want to think of him as being in charge. Um, so Jacob doesn't bless Joseph. He blesses his sons uh, and crosses his hands too. So the reading of how all these details of the story actually tell us something about human nature and about God's plan. It's an amazing story. And uh, that he can write 400 pages on it because he's got so many things to say about it. Uh, it's well worth studying. I think hopefully that's enough to get people to start wanting to read that book. Uh, keep it by your bed and with a marker in it and uh, read a bit and then you'll, it'll overwhelm you. Leave it there, leave the marker, then start reading where you last remember and eventually you'll get through the book. And then you'll read it again, probably three or four times over a few years. It's that kind of book like After Virtue is another book like that, that you read a paragraph, Augustine's Confessions. Books like that are important. Uh, because they're not easy to read, but we know they're important when we read them. Unlike, say, Tolkien, which you can't put down and you read again and again, because most people of our generation, anyway, love it. Uh, that's a different thing. What's worrying me about young people today, and um, why I want, why I'm spending this much time on this aspect of culture, is that I think they're being robbed of their culture by the screens. It's also transient, and it, it's, it's wrecking their lives. I didn't, we never had a television in our family, uh, my family growing up, and Sally and I, we didn't have a, a television after our children arrived. Uh, we went to Jamaica, fortunately, before the fourth one was born. He was born in Jamaica, so uh, they'd only watch BBC programs at four in the afternoon, which were good, no advertising, and gave Sally time to get evening meal while they sat in front of the box but television in Jamaica was useless it was a, everything was through a snowstorm um, we didn't have one we came to Canada and I said to the kids I'd been first to look at the job and give some talks and um, I said North America appears to have far more programs than they need and it's only got worse since most of which are not worth watching and certainly most of them contain stuff that you don't want in your mind but what do you want to do now the kids were what five seven nine eleven something like that this stage and bless them they said mm. we'd been back from jamaica in england for about 18 months where we'd had bbc has no advertising at least uh they said well jamaica was better because we played more games and we read more stories together we won't have a television we prefer the games and the stories. That's wonderful. And they did that. Now my oldest, who's now the missionary in Malawi, very social. She went off to school and wanted to be able to join in the conversation, which is of course all about soaps. 
but without seeing them she could rapidly she knew what was going to happen next because it's a pretty boring plot who jumps into bed with whom uh, you know it, it's it's rubbish but she could she could predict enough of it to be perfectly acceptable in the group uh, in terms of knowing what they were talking about. That's, that's good news. It can work that way. The other thing that horrified her, of course, she came back from school in those first few days and one afternoon, it may even been the first day, I can't remember, she burst into tears. And Sally, who chosen to be home, said... What's the problem? And she said, are you and daddy going to divorce? Because the first six children she got to know were all from broken families. So I said, no, we're not going to divorce. And explained why. Um, because we do love our children when they come along, but when we allow them to escape into a, a virtual world and we do the same ourselves, they're not being taught all the things they need to be taught without words. Uh, everybody, I think, even from dysfunctional families, they all have some good in them. And those, the more content is in that category, it's a voice behind you saying, you shouldn't do that. We don't do that in this, our family. Certain things I simply couldn't do, uh, not because I'm good, but because I was brought up in a way that that particular aspect of life is not open to negotiation. It made my parents what they were, uneducated and wonderful. I didn't appreciate how wonderful till after they died in many ways. But we need to realize that children learn far more from us than we imagine they do, because none of us can remember that learning process. Uh, but you only have to look at their vocabulary I remember very clearly uh, about the time I was thinking about this for the first time with my own children and I saved the life of a little kid from the a poorer part of London who was dying as he came in to emerge and he had serious uh, DNV and uh, was desalinated and one had to get a drip in in a minute or so if he's going to survive i got it in and got a liter into him and he he woke up from his semi-comatous and the first thing he said was f off it was he was two years old i just saved his life and his first comment was f off what? who's done that to a child it's what they hear all the while and nowadays of course everybody's doing it the the, the elite do it to make them themselves feel they're part of the general culture but they're, they're doing it more than everybody else anyway probably and they can't maintain relationships just look at the rates the worst parents to have are film stars they don't seem to be able to maintain a relationship for more than a few weeks with a few wonderful exceptions but that's inhabiting the story so uh, and it has an aspect that we also need to realize it's a big problem for us and so we we've got to focus on it wendell berry somewhere says that a professional is a person without place and i thought you've got that you've nailed that in a sentence yeah that's true because as a physician 
I could go anywhere in the world, and as long as the laboratories are there and the ward is there, I can function the next day. Because I don't need anything of the culture around me to be able to do it. I've been trained in that area. But uh, people with place have better relationships. They love the place that they're in, in a way that I can't, because I've lived in so many different ones. And community is place orientated. Um, the central place in our lives has to be thought about and we, we need to talk about it and, and point out that, yeah, you've had an interesting life, I can say to my children, but you, we never had the base, we never gave you the base you need in community and now that's becoming more and more important. I think that's probably enough for this one. Another few things to mull over and not be so happy about, but Let's face it, these are the things we've got to deal with. And the church has got to have responses to this. And reading Genesis will actually teach you a lot about uh, parenting and relationships between husbands and wives, the nature of sin. It's all there uh, in stories that ring true through the ages. Now we're going to move on um, because law has not yet been codified. There's uh, beginnings of it in what? the people refer to the uh, the code of noah uh, there's a beginnings of it but nothing like what's necessary to run a society of any size it's noticeable and the, the jews understand that they didn't live in cities for a long abraham never lived in a city he lived in tents isaac lived in tents uh jacob the same joseph was the first one who lived as a slave in a city. But the city is problematic in many ways. Wonderful places in many ways too. The Lord be with you. Thank you, Dr. John, and thank you guys all for listening. If you guys are enjoying this, feel free to subscribe to the podcast, leave a review, or leave a comment on YouTube and subscribe down below. If you guys have a question for Dr. John, you can ask that at www.johnpatrick.ca forward slash ask, or you can check the links below. With that being said, we appreciate it, and we'll see you guys next week.